Now, have you ever noticed that there's some names that just become so infamous with time, they just kind of get checked out of the list? Like, bringer of light, the light bringer. Like, that, that'd be an awesome name to have, right? And yet, to this day, I've never baptized a baby named Lucifer. I don't know why that is, you know? But it got checked out. It's like, have you ever met, do you have any friends named Judas? Right? Have you ever met an Adolf Smith? <laughs> Stalin Johnson, you know? It's like some names, they just become so infamous because they're associated with the type of behavior person that we just check them out. So I was really interested. There's one name. This used to be one of the third most popular name given to uh, children in 1965. The third most popular. In 2018, it dropped down to the 635th spot. It's a drastic drop, right? And it's only worse today. Can you guess which name it is? Carrie. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those homilies today. So, Karen is defined as a pejorative term used as slang for a middle-class, sometimes white woman who is perceived as entitled or demanding beyond the scope of what is normal, often policing other people's behaviors, right? And so this started with like, they think the origins of the word came from like Goodfellas, you know, because uh, Henry Hill's wife was named Karen, and she's always yelling at him, Karen, where's the money? Karen, where's the money? And then later on, it came with Mean Girls, right? So that girl who asked Katie, how can you be from Africa? You're not black. Like, Karen, that's racist. You can't say that. It's another. And then Dane Cook had a comedy thing about, like, you always have that friend named Karen that just says the awkward things in the group. South Park actually took it to another level recently because they had Randy, who was a man, who became a Karen. So it, it was across gender lines now. And so Karen can be really ascribed to a man or a woman who is trying to police behavior that's outside their domain, right? It's just a sense of entitlement. So when God tells us the prophets that they must call out other people's sins or else be guilty of it themselves, and Jesus gives us a whole code of how we deal with other people's sins, it made me ask a very important question. Maybe a question that no priest has ever asked before. What's the difference between a Karen and a Christian, right? That's a good question. Isn't that the, world, the way that the world tries to name Christians, right? Christians are the self-righteous, holier-than-thou, always judging other people's actions and trying to police how behavior should be in the world. And that's the one thing I think Christians, we, we kind of have this sense of guilt around us. Like we, sh- we don't want to judge anybody else. So it keeps us from naming sin because we have that kind of image upon us. So Matthew 18, where the gospel is taken from, is all about Christian ethics, the entire chapter right there. And specifically how to deal with personal struggles, both within ourselves, how we deal with our own sins, and then how would we deal with the sins in the midst of a community? You know, a friend of mine back in seminary, he once said something I think encapsulates all of this. He just said, relationships are messy. And that's what we have to remember. Relationships are messy because we as human beings are all sinful and fallen. So we're all messy. So when we get into relationship with other people, it's going to be messy. And just because we're a Christian community doesn't mean that's not going to be the case here because we're still fallen people. A man, Groucho Marx, once said, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as one of its members, right? And so it's, it's a really a too low of a bar. 
And you can think about that with churches. It's like, well, if you guys are going to accept somebody like me, I don't know if I want to be a part of you. The way that Christ defines community, though, the way that he says you are to be perfect, it's not that you're supposed to be without imperfections, you're supposed to be without sin and do everything right according to the commandments. How does Jesus Christ himself define perfection? You must love as your heavenly Father loves. You must be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, who allows his Son to shine on the just and the unjust alike. So it's that mercy that defines the Christian community with one another. You know, I always find this very interesting. Whenever I meet religious communities, I also, I also ask them, you know, what is, what is one of the greatest gifts that you found in religious life? Whether it be Dominicans, Benedictines, Franciscans, Jesuits, I almost always get the same answer. Every single time. It's the community life. Best part of religious life is community life. And these are the cream of the crop, right? The best of the best Christians who want to de- dedicate everything to following Jesus. And yet when you ask them, what's the worst part of being a part of a religious community? Same answer every time. Community life. It's very difficult to live in community with other people. Because it's not supposed to be easy. Because it's in community where we actually see who we are in ourselves. It's in community life where our own sins, our imperfections, are manifested. And we have to struggle with that in ourselves and with other people. It's interesting. Back in seminary, I had this one kid who just, him and I never got along, right? It's like mustard and milk. Mustard is great with, like, hot dogs. Milk, awesome, with cookies. You never put mustard and milk together, right? So two people can be perfectly fine on their own, but bring them together. And this guy just had one of those temperaments, you know, like, reminded me of, like, a Michael Patty type, like, always in your face, like, flaunting his stuff, taking off his shirt, showing you if he could get some new hair grown on his chest that week, like, one thing after another. And one time I went to my superior and I was asking him, I was like, well, what can I do with this brother? Like, how can I, what am I called to do except to be around him all the time? And he said, it was, it was pretty cool because he had this uh, stick already in his hand and he had just been sitting there with a rock. He was sharpening it up. And he said, you look at this. He goes, this stick is your heart and this rock is the brother. And God is sharpening up your love. He's teaching you how to love. And that's really how we learn to be in community. You get sharpened up. So community is not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be an exercise in love. And that's what St. Paul says in the second reading. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So community is about learning how to love in the midst of all of our imperfections, all of our sins. And it's also how we learn to grow out of our vice. It's like we had one of our Prasadi boys, right? He just came back to visit us. After he'd gone, I don't want to give names because we're going to judge him a little bit. But he came back to visit us from Washington, where he lives. And uh, let's just say he let himself... He didn't let himself go. He just let himself go... To fast food a little too often ever since he left our house. And so when he came back, he didn't notice him. We all started 
making fun of me. But we did it as Jesus taught us. First it was one-on-one, then it was in group chats, and now I'm doing it publicly in the church. And so this is just how Jesus told us we should correct one another. But he didn't realize it. And he was like, he's like, I thought I was fine. He's just like, he, because he left our community, we no longer had the discipline. He just slowly let some of his, uh, his our austerities go. Well, he's been sending me videos like every single day of him running and working out at like three o'clock in the morning. I'm actually really afraid of him at this point. He's going to come back in October and show me up. But he just said to me, he's like, I had no idea how far I'd fallen until I came back. And that's how it can be with community. Right? People walk away from the church at times because they just, I want to find Jesus on my own. I want to do it on my own. I can just pick up the scriptures on my own. But Jesus always says, he never says my father, it's our father. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. And the scriptures even tell us, he who says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. Because we see one another, we don't see God. And when we separate ourselves from community, what ends up happening is we just make God into our own image. We oftentimes allow ourselves to be as complacent as we naturally are as human beings. So we need community to sharpen us up. I had such a beautiful experience with, over this last summer with seminarians. They came to stay with us, also at the Prasadi house. And uh, we were staying up late at night, summertime, right? So it's like 11, 11.30 most nights. And I have to be at the church by 9.30 for work. And so we were sleeping into like 6, 6.15, sometimes 6.30. And we have to pray, have coffee, and then go to the gym before getting here. And so every morning we'd be getting up like that early, like that late, really, because we'd always got up earlier before because we were staying up so late, sleeping in. And uh, we'd get like 30 minutes of prayer, do our office of reading, morning prayer, and I'd run to the gym. And like three weeks into this, one of the seminarians comes up to me and says, Father, I, I need permission to take time off in the afternoon for a holy hour. Why is that? Because like, I'm not praying. It's like that we just we wake up and we go through all these words, but I'm not having any time to actually share my heart with the Lord. And it kind of felt like, have you ever had that one of those times where like someone sneezes and you say, God bless you, but what you're really saying is like cover your mouth, you know? <laughs> I kind of felt like that's what was happening to me in that moment because when he's saying he's living my schedule and he's not praying, what does that mean about me? And it was just a wake-up call for me. I got complacent with just going through the schedule in the morning, and I wasn't giving time to the Lord. So right then, made a resolution, getting up at 5 a.m. And it's transformed my my relationship with Christ, because now I have that time together. And I never would have made that resolution if I wasn't in a community with other men who kept me accountable. I would have just justified it to myself and said I was giving enough. This is why community is so essential. So the purpose of the church is not for us to get together to just be a family here in Boise or BSU. The purpose of the church is what? To save our souls, to get us to heaven. And that's why we also have to be very honest with each other when certain behaviors are manifesting themselves that are sinful, that are blocking our way to communion with God. And that's why God says to the prophet, if someone, if you see that your brother or your sister is sinning and you don't say anything, they will die in their sin, but I will hold you accountable. 
God holds us accountable for our brothers and sisters. Right? That's why the worst thing about there's talk from specific bishops about blessing homosexual unions. Why is that so dangerous? Because you're telling these people it's okay that you're on a way, you're living a way of life that can lead you to eternal damnation. You're not warning them. That's the primary purpose of the bishops and the priests. And when we don't do that, we end up with pride parades on a Sunday morning in the middle of Boise in September. Who else had a hard time getting to Mass today trying to make your way around that? Why on a Sunday morning are they doing this pride parade? What else happens on a Sunday morning? Traditionally, it's church. That's why this woke, this wokeness, this woke religion is far left. It's a new religion. And they're just becoming more and more and more apparent with it because we as priests and bishops and sometimes as laity are not speaking up about it. We cannot bless sin. We cannot approve sin. We love the sinner. I think every single one of us might know somebody with same-sex orientation. And we should love them. We should let them know, you're always welcome here. You're welcome in my life. But I will never bless anything that you do that will hurt your salvation. That I cannot do. Because I'll be held responsible for that too at the end of my life. What is the difference between a Karen and a Christian? I think I'm not out there on the street corners screaming at these people who are doing a pride parade that you're sinners, you're going to hell, or anything like that. Hopefully people are up there saying, God loves you, come back to him. Read the scriptures, know the truth, convert. But this is our family. This is the Catholic Church. We all came to Catholic Church this morning because we believe in Jesus Christ and we want to follow Jesus Christ. And those are teachings that are absolutely incompatible with our faith. Karens are self-righteous. They stand outside of a community and they judge the community. We don't need to judge them, but we do judge one another. You need to judge me as a priest if I'm not speaking the truth and leading you to heaven. And I need to judge you if you have thoughts and beliefs that are contrary to the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that can get in the way of our salvation. Christians are a family. We're a family. That means we love one another and we care about one another. And so it's not a self-righteous, you're evil and I'm good and you need to convert and come on my side. It's a, I love you and what you're doing will harm your soul. What you're thinking and how you're believing will lead you astray from Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that because I love you. And it's not my word, it's the word of Jesus Christ who we all assume that we profess here today. For example, in order to receive Holy Communion, right? So this came up a lot. This is, everyone brings friends here, which I gotta say, you know, we're growing and this is a beautiful thing. Um, and there's sometimes people who've been away, right? There's a, I'll tell you a quick story, only 20 minutes. Um, so this, this guy met this girl one time uh, on the campus, this is up at U of I, and he really liked her. 
And she was a Catholic, so she said, if you want to go out with me, you can take me to church on Sunday. So uh, as they're walking to church on Sunday, by the way, this is why women make the best apostles in, in the history of the church. And so they brought, she brought him to uh, church that Sunday. And as they were talking, he said how he hadn't gone to church in like a year and a half. Since he left home, he'd come to college and he just stopped going. So this is the first time going back. And they come to church together. They're talking. Um, they had a great time. But right before going to communion, she said, oh, don't forget to cross your arms. And he's like, what are you talking about, cross arms? She goes, no, you haven't, you've, been, you've been away from the church for a while. You have to cross your arms. He says, no, I don't. I'm a Catholic. I believe in the Catholic Church. He's like, yeah, but you've been missing Mass. He's like, what are you talking about? And so after Mass, of course, he walks up there, does the cross of shame. And then, you know, after the Mass, he goes, he goes to the priest. And he's like, is it true that if you miss Mass, you have to cross, you, you can't receive Holy Communion? The priest is like, yeah, that's... It's a, one of the Ten Commandments. You know, keep the Lord's Day holy. You have to go to Mass. And if you miss Mass, you have to do that. Well, that moment was the beginning of his conversion because he had to start thinking about every Sunday coming to Mass. The reason I know that story is because I went to seminary with that individual who ended up becoming a priest later on. And that all happened because of that woman who loved him enough to tell him the truth. So there's four conditions for us to receive Holy Communion. One, we have to believe that it's truly Jesus Christ. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's not a symbol. Right? Number two, we have to go to Mass every Sunday. Number three, we have to go to confession at least once a year or after committing grave sin. And four, we have to be in a state of grace. And if we cross all of those off, we receive communion. Did I miss one? One confession takes care of everything. You're back in the game. But we say that because we love you. And to receive communion without thinking about our soul and without thinking of the Lord, St. Paul says, we even drink condemnation upon ourselves. So it actually hurts us rather than helps us. That's why it's necessary to talk about it. In the end, our love must always be bigger than our law. As Christians, that's how we protect ourselves from a judgmental attitude. I'm telling you the truth, but I love you more than just do this right and then you have my love. It's like people have to know that we care about them before they feel about what we have to say. That's a community. That is a church. We help one another, we carry one another, we correct one another, and we don't carry one another. Relationships are messy because we're messy. But Jesus Christ promised us wherever two or three or more are gathered in his name, he joins us in our midst. He will join us in one moment here in the most blessed sacrament. And all that we're asked to do in return is owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law.